So, Will. Yes? You are tasked with constructing the world's largest and tallest building. Where would you build it, and why is it not San Francisco? (laughs) I mean, it is an extraordinarily terrible place to build the world's tallest building. Like, there are tall buildings there. The new one is the Salesforce Tower, and I think it's pretty tall. But at the same time, there's one thing San Francisco might be famous for, and that is massive earthquakes happening a lot. Yeah. I think it's notable that, like, San Francisco's landmark tall building, like the Transamerica building, is a pyramid shape because it is more structurally sound. Right. Like, even the Salesforce Tower is kind of weird shaped, and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that the entire city just shakes frequently. I mean, look, the building in this movie is pretty. It is. It should not be here. I love the decor. Like, this movie is full 70s design, and I'm so into it. I think the film cells themselves were wood-paneled. I just don't get it. And it was like, oh, so this is what everyone's been parodying when they parody 70s design. Right. I mean, this is sort of the ultimate example of 70s luxury. Yes. But you didn't answer the question. Where would you choose to build the world's tallest building? So I think what you do is you put it not where there are already like a ton of tall buildings. You put it somewhere where it will then be the center for like a new hub of urban growth. And of course, you want to avoid like tectonic challenges like in San Francisco. So I think you put it somewhere like Peoria, where it'll tower over the plains like Superman's metropolis and just bring in lots of business. You do have tornadoes to deal with in the Midwest. I don't know how those affect tall buildings. I also do not know, but I feel like large glass windows would not be amazing in that circumstance. Yeah. What if you built it on the ocean? (laughs) Like it floated. I don't know. But imagine if there was a massive floating skyscraper that just traveled the world. But, like, does it bob? Like, (laughs) how does this function in a storm? I don't know. It would probably tip over pretty quickly. See, Mark, the thing you have to remember is that when you build a building the size of a city, you also get all of the (laughs) problems that come with a large city. Oh, my God. I was thinking about that movie a lot during this one. Yeah, of course. Skyscraper is... The, what it was it, 2018 version of this movie. Exactly. And it's, honestly, I think I may have enjoyed Skyscraper more. Skyscraper's got some cool stuff going on. I think that Nev Campbell is certainly given a lot more to do than Faye Dunaway ever is. Yes. Faye Dunaway is doing exactly what you hired Faye Dunaway to do, which is look pretty and scared and also challenge the man. But not too but much. But not too much. So where would you put the big the big building? Or was the ocean your answer? (laughs) I mean, the ocean would be fun. Would it not be top-heavy? I think it would. I don't know any... Like, how deep below the ocean would it have to go? Can it only hang out on the Marianas Trench? Hmm. Does the building then itself, like, that effectively, like, ballast section, can you go in that too? Is it an above and underwater Now, that would be cool if there was a massive underwater building with a skyscraper attached to it, like an iceberg. This should be a movie. And then in the movie version, it's like got a, a, like H.G. Wells time machine thing where there's a rivalry between the underwater and surface dwellers. See, the thing is, 
and I'll probably talk about this later, I don't like disaster movies. Titanic might be the only one I saw, and Skyscraper is kind of a disaster movie, but it's mostly action, because it seems that everyone is fairly safe fairly quickly, except for... Dwayne The Rock Johnson and Neve Campbell and their children. Right, because that's because they get trapped in the, like, 10-story zoo in the middle of the building. Right. But I think it would be cool to just see a functioning massive city on the ocean and then do, like, a slice-of-life drama in it instead of just having it sink. So you want, like, Marriage Story, but it happens to be set in the ocean tower. Yeah, or Moonstruck. Like, uh, the life of the Italian-American community in Ocean Tower. Is Ocean Tower part of the United States? Is it sovereign? Like, how does this work? It'll depend on how big it is and who constructs it. And also, if it is founded by Randian people, like in Bioshock's Rapture. I think what we need to do is we need to set ourselves a goal. By the end of this episode, we have the name for the movie about the Ocean Tower. I'm laying down the gauntlet right now. We've got Sea Tower. Our job is to improve on Sea Tower by the time we're done with this episode. Okay. Anytime anything comes to you, just shout okay. it out. Okay. I guess part of that depends on what kind of movie you're thinking of. I think I'm in the, like, class conflict between above and underwater, and I'm not sure which one is higher status. Okay. I'm thinking rom-com. <laughs> between one person from above and one person from yeah. below? Yeah. Like, a water world type situation. No more land. Everyone lives on this ocean tower alternatively is it a mortal engine situation <laughs> where there are a bunch of these towers and the big ones like lash the small ones to them and make them part of their floating city see that would be kind of fun happening just like in the background of a rom-com and i'm trying to think about something with waves and rocked my world we'll see if i get there rocked my world is pretty good yeah i think that's the new standard that we're at that's kind of what i've got but I want to make sure it incorporates some ocean imagery somehow. Yeah. To stand apart from School of Rock and Rock of Love and whichever one Tom Cruise was in. Yeah, unfortunately, Waves is already taken. By a lot of things. There was also a band name named Waves with two Vs. Wowies. <laughs> anyway, so we'll get back to you on the title of the upcoming rom-com class conflict film, about an ocean tower. But until then, welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. And this is an investigative podcast committed to digging into one of the most important, unimportant questions of our day. Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation or if it's like really heavily front-loaded with romance and then by the end does like nothing with it. We will dig in and see what's there. And this week, we are looking at a listener suggestion from Justin, the 1974 disaster epic, The Towering Inferno. Justin, I have one question for you. Why did you make us watch a two-hour and 45-minute movie that's not Lord of the Rings or the Titanic? So I'm glad I watched it, but I do think this movie overstays its welcome. If you cut the amount of just repeated people falling off the building, which kind of Only like four its... people fall off. Yeah, it definitely... Towards the end, the it's water fewer pushes than I expected. a lot of... Yeah, it pushes a lot of people off. Oh, that's true. It kind of loses its meaning towards the middle and also just repeated shots of fire. I would love to watch the two-hour cut of this movie just to see if it's any more engaging. But again, I also yeah. don't like disaster, so 
this movie had a lot to do to get me on board and two hour 45 minutes I lost steam and had to watch it in two settings I think it's notable that you brought up Titanic because I think that the platonic ideal of the towering inferno is James Cameron's Titanic where it's a movie about the opening of the biggest thing of its kind in the world you've got all of these top society people there and something goes wrong due to mismanagement and hubris And people are trapped, and the question is, who, if any of them, will survive over an incredibly long collapse? And Titanic works, of course, because you spend an hour and a half getting invested in these personal relationships. And also because at the very start of the movie, we are walked through a little 3D animatic of exactly how the ship will go down, so we understand the stakes of everything that happens once they start going wrong. Whereas in The Towering Inferno, we're introduced to just gobs of characters, and the building starts having issues immediately... So from the drop, we're like, well, this is terrible, and I'm not sure who all these people are. So I think you're right about that, and I think the other thing is the Titanic represents the perfect disaster in general, historically, in that it is a tale of hubris and class division and you know you've got the element of the women and children first conflict that happens which was kind of invented on the titanic so there's all that going right on so too. that's all real life stuff happening on top of that the like outrageous we would complain about it in fiction fact of like it was the first voyage of this ship it was the decorated captain's final voyage the architect was on board like it would feel really hammy if it weren't true right so i think it's hard to kind of get away from that storyline in any sort of disaster film except for adding or subtracting to it and i find buildings to be less engaging than boats in general because they can't move like once the building's on fire the building's on fire whereas the boat's kind of like trapped and stranded and you get off the boat but you're still not safe and then this building didn't even have a zoo in it or terrorists trying to hunt down the main characters or a top room made out of mirrors. exactly it's kind of like a pretty building And I love it, but it's also like, come on, this skyscraper needs to have more challenges other than just fire. At a certain point, the fire outstays its welcome. So the move for you might be the producer, Erwin Allen, uh, who also directed the action sequences. His previous movie, The Poseidon Adventure, which is kind of a similar vibe, but is on an ocean liner. I watched the remake of that, Poseidon, and I got to the start of the disaster. All I remember about that movie is... Fergie was singing, and then I was just watching it. I think I was in middle school. I was like, why do I want to watch all of these people die? I get no enjoyment out of this. So many people are dying, and now I'm sad. So I turned it off. How very humanistic of you. Uh, That's one of the reasons I don't like watching disaster movies, is it's like, why do I want to see just a bunch of innocent people dying? Right, and that's kind of the challenge of the disaster movie genre is... Figuring out what the protagonist is, what the audience is supposed to care about. And Cameron's Titanic uses the central romance as like, here's the thing you care about. And so your investment in the singing of the Titanic is in part your investment in like what's going to happen to these two people. It also is honestly kind of made better in that it's a real story. And that movie does it especially well of showing the horror of it and not just using cheap shots of people falling off a building for like scares whereas titanic is like this is awful and 
all of these people died and you should feel incredibly sad. Right. Whereas this movie's number one takeaway is firefighters are heroes. Right. And boy, do they make that clear at the beginning and end with their (laughs) text boxes. Yeah. So the movie starts with a dedication to firefighters. Like it tells you from the drop, here's San Francisco, the towering inferno, dedicated to firefighters. And if you take away one thing from this movie, it's that the filmmakers will seize any opportunity to show the heroism of firefighters. Like, that is the goal in this movie. It also ends with the fire chief, played by Steve McQueen, saying, like, we're just gonna keep having disasters until people start listening to firefighters. It was such a blatant message, and it was so funny. And it's also just like, did the director or writer or something's house burn down? They're so into firemen and scared of fires. So I I don't know about that, to answer your question. As we mentioned last week, this screenplay is written by Sterling Siliphant, who also wrote In the Heat of the Night. And like that movie, it's adapted from a novel. But this movie, as you may have noticed, Mark, is actually adapted from two novels. The Tower by Richard Martin Stern and The Glass Inferno by Thomas Scorsia and Frank Robinson. So they took The Tower and The Glass Inferno and smushed their titles together. I don't really see why you need two books. I have the answer to that question, because the books are similar enough that they didn't need to do this. What happened was the tower came out, and there was a big bidding war. Warner Brothers paid $400,000 for the film rights to it, in the process outbidding Fox. So then Fox turned around and spent $300,000 buying the rights to The Glass Inferno. So then Irwin Allen, who produces this movie, convinced Warner Brothers and Fox that it would be a bad idea to have two tall buildings on fire movies hitting the box office around the same time. So he convinced the two studios to co-finance it. So then Sterling Siliphant was given both books and being like, make the movie. That explains it. Studio politics. Yeah. Really, that's the only thing that kind of makes sense. And I mean, there's enough characters in this to be two books. Right. And so in the end, Fox got domestic distribution and box office and Warner Brothers got the foreign box office, which wound up being pretty close to one another. So they both worked out all right. It made $48 million in the US and $56 million overseas, which made it the second highest grossing film of 1974 behind Blazing Saddles. And it was really well received, too. Very much so. Which I don't really get, to be honest. I think more than anything else, it is a, like, when you read about it, a lot of the attention is paid more to Irwin Allen than to John Gillerman, the director. And I think more than anything, this movie is a triumph of producing. From convincing Warner Brothers and Fox to co-finance it so they didn't cannibalize each other, to actually making all of the pieces of the movie happen, coordinating with fire departments. But also, this movie was shot across 57 sets, and they had four camera crews working simultaneously. So uh, John Gillerman, the ostensible director, was working on like dialogue sequences, while Irwin Allen was off directing the special effects sequences. They had another person in charge of the helicopter shots, and another crew doing other stuff, I forget what. Uh, Maybe doing, like, the models. So this is a thing that's just a massive feat of coordination. So the fact that it does function as an admittedly overlong kind of epic movie all contained in one building is pretty impressive. That is very very impressive. What was the budget for this movie? It was $14 million, which is really expensive for the time. Right. And it has two massive stars in it, too, as the leads. Right. Steve McQueen and Paul Newman were paid a million dollars each, which is unheard of at That's the time. insane. Yeah. So this was a titanically expensive movie. And if you think about the Best Picture Award, which this movie was nominated for, 
I mean, it's an award that is given to the producers. If you think about this as a feat of producing, that nomination does kind of make sense. It is in terms of the, you know, actual like crafting of film very well done. I just find the story part to be kind of lacking and I didn't really feel that attached to any characters. I agree with you. That's kind of the issue with the movie. Uh, That said, this is the only Oscar nomination Fred Astaire ever received. That's ridiculous. He didn't, I like, that's insane. He was good at it. It's outrageous. But he plays a a cute old con man. Yeah. I mean, he does zero dancing. He's great, but there's no dancing. So it's like, what's the point? Yeah. He did win the BAFTA and the Golden Globe. I mean, I think at that point it was more of a we haven't given him any awards situation. You gotta do it, yeah. In addition to being nominated for Best Picture, it was also nominated for Best Sound, Best Score for John Williams, Best Art Direction, and Supporting Actor for Fred Astaire, and it won the Oscars for Cinematography, Editing, and Original Song. All of those make sense to me. Yeah, the song is good. It's the one that that woman sings like in the party on the promenade deck. It's called We May Never Love Like This Again. It was good, and... I enjoyed the, I mean, the cinematography is obviously incredible and it's over edited in that they put too many scenes in, but the editing is good. Yeah. Uh, It is worth noting, like I was making the case for this as an achievement of producing and that being worthy of best picture. And I think that's true, but it lost to the Godfather part two. And this movie isn't even anywhere close to the same league as the Godfather part two. Yeah, that, that tracks. That is a very good movie that I have not seen in a long time, and I should probably rewatch. Yeah, uh, hot take, it's good. I don't know how hot that take is, Will. Well, it's hot outside today. Uh, yeah, every take is hot today. I had to leave the apartment twice today, and it was hell both times. I made a run to ye old liquor store and said, no, thank you, on my way back. It was nice because I uh, I was walking in right behind a doctor and I was like, oh, a teacher and a doctor walking into a liquor store at obviously distanced uh, at three o'clock in the afternoon really says a lot about how we've chosen to respond to the pandemic. I was walking to and from the grocery store for one of them and being like overladen with groceries on your way home in a hundred degree heat was not entirely enjoyable. Yeah, not okay. But anyway, speaking of heat, there was a lot of fire in this tower. There was a lot of fire in this tower. Actually, I mentioned that they shot it across 57 sets simultaneously on the Fox lot. By the time they finished shooting the movie, only eight of them were still intact. <laughs> that That's crazy. I mean, it makes sense. They burned sense. down 49 sets. It makes sense. They burned out a lot of stuff in this movie. Yeah. Was there a lot of... Do you know if there were a lot of models used in this movie? Because I was wondering how they got the scenes of, like, the building in San Francisco. Yeah, so that's mostly models. And you can tell in some of the shots that they're pretty good models. Actually, the most interesting modeling thing is for the scenes in the promenade deck where you see, like, the skyline of San Francisco beyond. What they did was they built, like, an enormous cyclorama, which is, like, a dome with a painting all around it. I'm from Atlanta. I know what a cyclorama is. Okay. They built a cyclorama of the San Francisco skyline and put it over the promenade deck set. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Also, shout out to any other Atlantans that have been to the cyclorama there. It's probably problematic, if I remember correctly. The most famous one in the country probably is the one at Gettysburg National Battlefield in Pennsylvania, which I have seen, but not in many years. 
They were very popular in the late 19th century because, again, you think about it as a period before film, cicloramas would tour the country and be set up in different cities. And it was like, go experience being immersed in this world or event. They make a lot of sense for that time period. And they're pretty cool. But yeah, like in terms of pre-movies, I get it. But also, I do think the movie may have made them a little unnecessary. Yeah, I mean, it's not like people are building cycloramas all the time now. I don't know. Maybe that's my calling. Maybe I'll be the next major cycloramist. We could make a movie about that too, called the Cycloramist. I'm into that title. It yeah. sounds and it would be like a dark and moody, arty drama, black and white. At of some course. point, you would like in fury, you would punch a hole through a section of the cyclorama. Right. Or alternatively, you like slowly go mad and live your life inside the cyclorama, and you can't quite engage with the world beyond your dome. I think the whole movie takes place in black and white, except for the cyclorama when it's finished. I I like that. That's good. Yeah. The only color is when it's revealed to the public. We should make a movie. What is your cyclorama of? Mm, I don't know. It's like, I kind of get why battles are chosen for them, because it's used to show the encompassing of the battle. Those are the, the only example of cycloramas I know of are of battles, because it's kind of similar to Guernica, too. Yeah. But uh, I want to do agree. something But I agree. We should fun. make a movie. I mean, we got to get started on some of these scripts. We've been pitching them for years. The Butcher's Bouquet deserves to be seen. I think the cyclorama, the big reveal should be that it's absolutely horrible. Like, it's just a bunch of stick figures standing in a circle holding hands. And it says, like, love across the ceiling. <laughs> like, is it is it spelled L-U-V? Uh, no, it's it's done with the heart that's on the side, like, in those, those like, on top of each other. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, the I understand. everywhere. Yeah. That's just on the ceiling. And then, otherwise, it's just, like, hands across America in stick figure form. Okay. I've got an idea here. Okay. We need to take as many of our movie pitches and put them in a cohesive universe set inside the sea tower. And the cycloramist can live at the top. And that's supposed to be, like, the crowning achievement of the sea tower is they're going to have this at the top. But then he makes it and it's terrible. I'm into it. I think each movie we do takes place on a different floor of the building. Yes. Perfect. Each floor is like its own world. And so to bring in the pun of the tower, this movie's called The Cycloramist. Oh, God. That was a lot of buildup for a terrible pun, Will. I have no regrets. Sometimes I think you should. Um, speaking of things that are excellent and kind of absurd... When they were negotiating the stars for this movie, because like the Poseidon Adventure, they wanted to have lots of big stars just bursting from the movie. Paul Newman, who plays our architect, Doug, Steve McQueen, who plays the fire chief, and William Holden, who plays the wealthy businessman who owns the building, all wanted top billing for the movie. They said no to William Holden. They were like, you're old, your star has faded. But they couldn't hash out between Paul Newman and Steve McQueen which of them would have top billing. So what they did is... They have billing on the same title card at the start of the movie. And Steve McQueen is on the lower left and Paul Newman is on the upper right. So if you read left to right, it's McQueen Newman. If you read top to bottom, it's Newman McQueen. So either of them can make the argument that they are first. That's so dumb. (laughs) It's quite dumb. Also, I feel like Paul Newman should have just gotten top billing because his character does the most. Yes, but Steve McQueen is the hero of the movie. I guess they would want to make the firefighter the... Honestly, the top billing should just be firefighters. <laughs> firefighters in the Towering Inferno. Allegedly, 
when they were chatting with the fire department in Los Angeles, Steve McQueen and some other folks were supposed to meet with the fire chief, but there was a fire going on. They went to the fire and allegedly Steve McQueen managed to get somebody's fire uniform and helped fight the fire so that he could get a real feel for it. Ugh. That's the kind of story that could be true, like an actor doing something dumb, or it could be mid-20th century Hollywood public relations stuff. That's just so dumb and gross. And frankly, dangerous. Speaking of dumb, gross, and dangerous, this movie has O.J. Simpson in it. Yeah, this is his second film appearance. <laughs> that was a surprise to me when he just showed I mean, up. he had kind of a long film career. He, he's in movies for like 20 years. What was his first movie? So he'd done some TV before this, but his first movie was a movie called The Klansman, which is about racist people. And it came out earlier this year. So when he's in The Towering Inferno, this is like his big film debut year. We've talked about OJ's film career before because the studio tried to get James Cameron to cast OJ as the Terminator, but Cameron did not believe audiences would accept him as a killer. Right. And we all know how that turned out. Yes. In this, he plays the guy that rescues a cat. That is his main function. He literally saves the cat. He saves the cat, and that's about it. For people who don't know, save the cat is shorthand in screenwriting for giving a character some minor heroic act early in a movie so the audience knows that's the good guy so like having somebody rescue a cat will make an audience like the person and that's literally all oj does in this movie is he saves a cat right and then breaks the bad news while giving a person a cat (laughs) right we'll have to talk about that we should start talking about the romance of this movie because there's kind of a lot and also very little it's a very strange mix so every week we break down the romance of a movie into five points to really dig our teeth in and stay on topic Two things we're very good at. So, Will. So, yeah. So, the thing about this is a lot of times when we have a lot of romances, we'll do each romance as a point. But these are so sparse and infrequent that I was like, the heck with it. We'll do it in chronological order. And I think we'll hit everything. And also, the listeners will have some sense of how strange this movie is. I also want to note, a lot of these people kind of look the same, which makes it more confusing. I I might be much less help than usual because I got lost on who people are a lot. I kept the Wikipedia cast list open a lot and just kept checking. So, like, in my notes, it constantly refers to, like, secretary or lady, and then I have arrows pointing, like, same person. The cast list has one of the longest lists of named characters I've ever seen. Yeah, because they're combining two books with just smushing them together. So many actual Wikipedia pages listed, too. Right. Yeah, like, all these people in the cast have their own Wikipedia page. Like, Apparently, someone named John Crawford plays Callahan, and he's right towards the end. But he is also a TV actor that was in so many things. And it's just like, that's, you know, maybe number 25. But that was also part of the point of this movie and the Poseidon Adventure before it, was it was supposed to be this, like, to borrow a phrase from another movie, a cavalcade of stars, just all these people crammed together. And so, among other things, it's supposed to give the audience the sense of what this event is in the world of that movie. It was all of the luminaries of fictional San Francisco, including the mayor and a senator, coming together. And so to get the audience invested in a similar way, the idea is, okay, we'll put all of these recognizable film and TV stars in the same place. Like, it makes sense in that framing. And I think it would have more impact if I knew who most of these people were. I am just now finding out I know who William Holden is because he is from... Sunset Boulevard. Yeah. 
I did not recognize him. He was very familiar to me like the whole time, but I did not recognize him for most And that's of the it. thing where his peak stardom was 20 years earlier, which is why they just said no to him about top billing. Yeah, that's fair. Did he get like an and or was that not as much of a thing then? I think he's third build. I think it's McQueen and Newman together and then William Holden. That makes sense. He's probably like up there among the most important characters for sure. Yeah, important character. And he is, you know, an award-winning famous actor who had been a box office draw. But you compare to Paul Newman one year after The Sting, five years after Butch Cassidy, Steve McQueen coming off of his 60s with things like The Magnificent Seven and The Great Escape and The Thomas Crown Affair. Like William Holden at this point isn't competing with those two. I think if I were to make the cat like if i were in charge of the cast list i would have done newman mcqueen faye dunaway william holden with fred astaire and then everyone else after that i mean that makes sense dunaway just doesn't have a ton to do here i know but she's probably a bigger draw than william holden at that point because she's isn't she just off of chinatown at this point uh chinatown is the same year so that wouldn't have been part of the negotiations on this one Yeah, Chinatown also nominated for Best Picture against The Towering Inferno. Right. But she had been in Bonnie and Clyde, which also very famous. Yes. Have you watched Chinatown yet? I have not. It's in my crate of unwatched DVDs, but I haven't gotten around to it. Very interesting movie. I would recommend it. Except... No, I believe you have recommended it on this podcast like a year ago. Probably when I first watched it. I mean, it's uncomfortable to watch it because it is a Roman Polanski movie. Yes. So it's one of those things where it's like... I don't know. A lot of thoughts have been spread about this. I don't know if we need to dig into it here. Yeah, I would say generally, obviously, things are not great right now. But a movie like Chinatown, probably the best way to watch it is to borrow it from your public library. Uh, That, I recommend that. Or buy it for like a dollar at a used DVD store. Right, or like eBay or something like that. Right. Don't go into used DVD stores right now. If you must, wear a mask. Wear a mask always. Just like a firefighter would wear a mask when taking down the towering inferno, a building full of romance. All right, Will, what is point number one? Okay, so this is the morning of the opening of the big tower, whose name I do not remember. I think it's just called the Glass Tower. Uh, yep, the Glass Tower. I want the kind of life you're talking about. I want that, and I want a place where our kids can run around and grow and be free. job i've wanted it for five years i've worked for it for five years now suddenly it's there we do have like a hot second where there's one scene of doug played by paul newman quitting and everyone's like you're not really gonna quit and he's like no i'm quitting i'm going to live in the wilderness and he walks into the elevator and then like immediately walks out and i think like two years have passed and the building is done and it's the big day and so doug comes back to work having returned to architecture And he walks into his office, and there is Susan, played by Faye Dunaway. And we got to walk through the architecture of his office, because there's like a big open-air office where lots of people have desks. Then you go through a door, and there's a reception area where there's a receptionist. And then you go through a door there to Doug's office, the architect of the building. And then there is another door beyond that. This is like a Russian doll of offices, where he just has a sex den. He has a room just to have sex at work. Yeah, it's got like a big bed. A big round bed. One of the things we learned is that it was Faye Dunaway's idea. She was like, you should build yourself a secret sex den into this building. And he was like, done. And then nobody else questioned it. Her entrance is incredible in this movie. 
when she just turns around in the chair and stands up. Yeah, she's sitting in his, like, true office. Right. The chairs turn around, so you don't know anyone's in there. And then he walks behind the desk, and then she just stands up, and they start making out. Well, he takes her hat off her head, so the first thing we see is he just grabs a hat. Right. And then they start kissing, and they have some of the weirdest dialogue before they go to bang. Yeah, it's strange. They're talking about, like, hamburgers and she says oh you're better than a hamburger all protein no bread which was shudder inducing she's talking about his meat mark i know it's so weird i had no idea what was going on in their conversation except that it was sexual it was steamy but then they go into the bedroom and just have sex in the middle of the workday in the bedroom that he built off of his office and then after they have sex they have this whole conversation about what they're gonna do now that the building is opening Doug wants to go back to the wilderness because he thinks he can do that, despite the fact that clearly he keeps getting drawn back into city life. And Susan is like, I want to go and live in the wilderness with you, but I also want to be a high-powered professional woman, and I cannot do both of those things. And thus we have the conflict introduced for Susan that will never be picked up on again. It's never discussed again. She was offered a big promotion at work, and she was like, I've been working at this forever, but I also want to have kids with you, so I'm torn. And then... Do we get any resolution about whether she takes the job or not? No. What are you, dumb? It's funny because we keep comparing this movie to Titanic, and Titanic uses that pull with Kate Winslet's character so well, where on the one hand, she has society life with Cal, and on the other side, she has the life of adventure she wants with Leonardo DiCaprio. And so choosing the man is also choosing between two very different kinds of lives. And we're set up with a similar kind of conflict with Faye Dunaway, and then it like we said, is never addressed again. No, why would it need to be? I mean, I get that at the end of the movie is not the best time to talk about your future because you're just sitting in shock after being in a burning building. But it's kind of weird that they introduced it at all. Right, it's not a conflict that needs to be there. And the movie doesn't really care about Susan because she is not a firefighter. (laughs) Right, she is a woman and thus not really worth paying attention to. All right, so that's one relationship. We've also got Roger who is the son-in-law of William Holden. And Roger is married to William Holden's daughter. And he's a scumbag who has been overseeing the architecture during the two years that Doug went to live in the wilderness, in which he may or may not have wrestled grizzlies. He is a basically mustache-twirling villain with a maniacal laugh. clearly evil from the drop. And boy, are they unhappy in their marriage, too. In part because Roger resents any oversight by William Holden, even though there should be more. Right. He's so bad at his job. I mean, he doesn't want more oversight because he's clearly getting kickbacks and corrupt. Right. But it's the thing where he was in charge of getting the project back to the original budget and the blueprints that Doug submitted were $6 million over. And Roger saved two by using cheap substitute electrical wiring. They never really explain why the sprinklers don't work either. Presumably other corners were cut. because There is a moment where Roger is talking to William Holden and he's like, you know what I did to save $2 million. What did you do to save the other four off Doug's estimate? Right. It's He's just so So this does seem like a thing where both of them made horrible choices that got a bunch of people killed, and Roger doesn't even feel bad about it. No, and Roger has no shame, and we'll get to this later, but he is just, like, the most self-centered person in this whole movie. But at one point, Patty says, like, we're running out of reasons to say married, aren't we? 
So clearly their marriage is on the rocks. Yeah, they done so. All right. So that's their relationship. <laughs> that's their relationship. All right. We've also got Harley, who's just a cute old man played by Fred Astaire, who's just got his little round head. And he flirts with an older woman named Lizolette. Harley and Lizolette are such weird names. And I'm very glad that they are the couple together. Yes. I don't know that Harley's name is ever spoken in the movie. I didn't know where you got Harley from, to be honest. I got it from Wikipedia. Maybe they said it like once or twice. Yeah. Before I figured out who people were. Um, And then also the mayor is married. Yep. That's about it. The the mayor of San Francisco has a wife. And so that's point number one. We've got these relationships. Doug and Susan banging in the office. Roger and Patty, marriage on the rocks. Harley flirting with Lizalette. The mayor got a wife. And also some other people have wives too. Yeah, of course. Point number two. Hooray. So this is the big night. It is the party time. There never were any firemen, were there? I said that to make it easier on you. I switched off the phones. There's no way to call out. Nobody knows we're up here. Well, I always did want to die in bed. Right, there's like a gala party for the opening of the glass tower. One of California's senators comes in and Cuts the ribbon to open the building. But he doesn't make it all the way through the ribbon. Foreshadowing disaster. Yeah. So there's a lot just happening at the party on the promenade deck, which is the fancy top floor. Although Doug's not hanging out there too much because he's trying to sort out some problems that are going on with the building. I marked it down 38 minutes and 50 seconds. Something's... Or no, that's the first person. Never mind. The first actual fire happens within five minutes of this movie starting. Yeah, it's like immediate. Yeah. Like a fuse bursts and (laughs) electrical wires fall onto like a box of oily rags or something. It's like a room with a sign on it that says all contents flammable. So at the party, we've got Harley... Cute old man Fred Astaire and Lizalette. They're having this like nice little chat where he asks her if she believes in destiny. And she's like, I don't know. And he's like, well, something must have brought me back from Monte Carlo to San Francisco. And it's very clear very early on that he is not a rich man with a villa in the south of France. Right. He's like spinning all these yarns about his fabulous wealth. We did at one point see him with a briefcase full of stock certificates. Yes. But ooh, we'll find out what those are later. It made me think about like how weird it is the amount of stuff in our society that is based on like having a specific piece of paper. Yeah, life nowadays requires much less paying attention to pieces of paper. But it seems to have been like at least 10% of what you needed to focus on in the past. Right. I mean, that's the idea behind like a diploma from a school is that if you move somewhere else where nobody knows who you are, you can be like, here's this piece of paper that says I'm qualified to do this job. And that's why it's written in a letter style right to whom it may concern or at georgetown in latin greetings in the lord (laughs) fantastic (laughs) i finally just got a frame for my college diploma so i'm feeling very fancy Ooh, so fancy it must take up at least half of a wall because they're so overly large it makes my masters look like an idiot (laughs) (laughs) yeah i don't even know if i'll get my master's diploma because I can't really go to graduation because I'm not allowed back in the country. Yeah. I don't know about that. Maybe they'll mail it to you. I hope so. All right. So Harley and Lizalette are talking about Destiny. Once the fire starts getting going, as it does at this point, there's word like, hey, there's a fire going on. Everybody just stay put. We'll probably be fine. But Lizalette leaves very quickly because she's like, there's a deaf lady in the building. She probably won't know that there's a fire going on. Who is that deaf lady and those children? 
I was never So clear. she just lives in the building. It's a 120-story building, and the top 40, besides the promenade deck, are residential. But it's it's like, she seems to be the only person to have moved in. So I'm wondering, why has she moved in already to this building that is just now opening? I think some other residents had also moved in. Like, I think Harley and Lisa Lett, or Lisa Lett at least, lives there. Okay, but everyone else is at the party who yeah. lives there. I guess that makes sense. And I think most of the people who were in there were eligible to go to the party. Because when we're introduced to the deaf lady and her kids, the little girl is like, oh, Lisa Lett, are you going to the party? Right. I mean, I guess it would help fund the building if as soon as the places were ready, even if the tower wasn't open, you could have people move in. Right. Into this incredibly unsafe building. Yeah, this building where no one should have been allowed to move in. I love how much shit-talking of fire code happens in this movie. (laughs) (laughs) everyone's like fire code that's bogus it is not strong enough and fire code if you follow that you'll all die like can you imagine humans just ignoring health and safety procedures and saying that they know what's best for the safety of a society yeah it's hard to wrap your mind around i know yeah there's a point in this movie where they call it murder when the building is open to hundreds of people without proper safety measures in place i mean yes (laughs) yeah Just something that struck me as somebody who will theoretically have returned to school by the time this episode comes out. Oh, boy. Hopefully not. Hopefully not. Um, Anyway, speaking of people who make strange choices, (laughs) we got to talk about Dan Bigelow, who is in charge of, like, press? Yeah, he's the public relations officer for the building. He is not at the party. This is... Like, his big night. He should be at the party managing public relations. I could not tell you one thing about him except that he has sex with his secretary during the most important event. There is a massive fire outside the door when they open it. He dies in the fire, and then Lori is on fire and falls off the building. Because that's what happens when you have sex out of marriage. You catch on fire, and you fall to your death from the hundredth floor. Right, his problem is... He turns off the phones so that nobody will bother them while they're banging. So when the fire chief, like, calls all the phones in the building to say, get out, they don't hear it. Bigelow is played by Robert Wagner. Lori is played by Susan Flannery, who won a Golden Globe for Best New Star for this movie. And they must bone for hours. I would not have given. If there was a person to choose an award for, it would not be Lori. Don't understand. She, at this point, was towards the end of an 11-year run on Days of Our Lives and later spent 25 years on The Bold and the Beautiful. That's extremely impressive. Good for her. 1987 to 2012. I'm very into it. But at the same time, I'm like, would I have really (laughs) chosen Lori to give an award to? Maybe not. I think they have sex for at least an hour and a half. Yeah, during the most important part of his job. Right. He is terrible at PR. Right. And so then the fire is raging and they're like resigning themselves to dying. And he's like, no. So he wraps a blanket around his head, not his face, around his head, just like a shawl and runs out into the flames to try to get help. Immediately catches fire and dies. (laughs) Immediately. They have maybe the worst end. Like, (laughs) the movie does not respect these characters at all. Bigelow should be at the party! This was honestly one of the funniest parts of the movie, and it should not have been. But I was just like, what's going on? So then Laurie takes a chair, pitches it out the window, and jumps out. But you're right, like, I had forgotten they 
were down there banging. I had forgotten they existed until it cut back to them like an hour after we had seen them. And it was like, oh, yeah, you know, they've just been having sex all this time. Yeah, it was definitely, it must have been, he missed the whole part. He missed the Oscar winning song. Was he even there when they cut the ribbon? Like, what was he I doing? I think he was. Okay. I think he was there when they cut the ribbon and then like a bunch of people went inside and he peeled off to go bang his secretary. Oh, it's so bad. I do want to say, so to put the movie in context, 38 minutes and 50 seconds into the movie, the first person is on fire. There are over two hours left at this point. To put that in perspective, in Titanic, you have maybe only an hour left once the disaster starts. Maybe a little more. And also there are like different kinds of challenges they face. Where there's, like, Leo being handcuffed to the pipe. There's flooding in different sections. There's, like, when the back of the boat tilts up. So they have to deal with different kinds of challenges. Whereas here, for the most part, the challenges are fire. Although there is that, like, cool stair sequence where Paul Newman has to figure out how to get up a staircase that's been destroyed. It's very video gamey, but it's kind of cool. It is. There are definitely really cool moments in it. But it was still, you have less than 40 minutes to develop relationships with 50 characters that you should then care about dying in a fire, but it doesn't give you any time to form these relationships. Talking about people dying in the fire, do you have any idea when the phrasing stop, drop, and roll became popular? It must have been after this, because no one was stop, dropping, and rolling. No one does it. People, like, get some fire on their clothes and just kind of, like, lumber around. And look, I'm sure... Having your clothing burning is very stressful and it's hard to think. But this is a thing that we teach to like four-year-olds. Right. It was very drilled into me as a kid. Like extremely. Like I thought I would be on fire at least every year. Right. It's the John Mulaney joke about quicksand where you're like, this is a skill I will use frequently in life. I'm on the Wikipedia page for Stop, Drop, and Roll. It does not address the origins. Yeah. I'm trying to... See, when did stop, drop, and roll start? The 1970s is when the first fire safety PSA started. The late 70s, it seems. Okay, fine. So these people didn't know. (laughs) Humans had just been using fire for 10,000 years, but they had not yet figured out (laughs) stop, drop, and roll. Uh, Apparently, Dick Van Dyke taught the nation to stop, drop, and roll. Okay, we need to watch the crap out of that. Anyway, apparently people couldn't put it together that just laying on the ground won't put out a fire and some sort of activity needs to happen. All right. So this takes us to point number three. The fire and the movie have been raging for about 90 minutes and Paul Newman has made it up to the promenade deck with these children that he's rescued because the deaf lady and her kids did not know about the fire because she was deaf and didn't hear the phone call and her kid has the loudest headphones on the planet with these massive antennas sticking out so he looked like a cartoon alien. I was a big fan of those antenna, even though they almost led to his death and did lead to his mom's death. Yeah, I think she may be the person I felt the worst for. Yeah, she didn't deserve to die. No, and I guess now Doug and Susan have two children. Right, because these the kinds ones of movies must assemble them. an impromptu family by the end, just like Birdemic. Because the other thing is the person that takes charge of them Lisa Lett, spoiler alert, also dies. So now it basically passed to the C-string of childcare, and it seems that Doug and Susan now own two children. So maybe that's our answer to the Susan question. She was like, on the one hand, I want to have kids in a yard. On the other hand, I want to have a high-powered job. If she's stuck with these kids, maybe that resolves the story. We weren't paying attention. I guess that's it. Anyway, I guess this brings us to point three. Are you coming? Or not? 
Yeah, so we're at these reunions on the promenade deck. Everyone's together, and it's kind of clear, like, we need some drastic solutions or everybody up here is going to die. So what Roger, the scumbag son-in-law of William Holden, decides to do is see if he can escape himself. He tries to run down the stairs, fails, comes back looking all disheveled, and... When his wife tries to comfort her, he says, I don't need you. I need this. And just drinks whiskey and tells her how she's annoyingly like her father. He's just so over the top villain. He is terrible. And right. And that's not even the worst thing he does. No. Oh, it's so bad. But to put the promenade deck into context, they're on like the 130th floor. And the fire started on the 81st floor. So they felt pretty safe at the beginning. Because there was a lot of space between them and the fire. But at this point, it's really spreading. And they're realizing, like, we can't get down from here. Right. And the elevators either aren't working or are being used by the firemen. And in a bunch of cases, the stairs are blocked. Right. I don't think there's any clear staircases. But they've gotten some people out at this point. Yeah, they got a couple of elevators down. And they're going to get, like, the plan is they'll get, like, one or two more down. Doug and Susan have a nice moment together where they acknowledge that both of them are alive. I would enjoy a real movie with Paul Newman and Faye Dunaway. Like, yeah. they have a lot of chemistry. They just don't they just have do a lot nothing. to do. But, yeah, they have just a nice moment, and they're in love. Oh. Meanwhile, Harley, Fred Astaire, facing death, decides to confess to Lisa Lett that he is not a, like, wealthy baron. He is, in fact, a con man who came to the party to sell her false stock certificates in a company that doesn't exist. And Lisa Lett is just like, oh, I knew all of that. I'm still in love with you. You're this person really I barely cute. know. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, is he cute? Sure. I have a feeling Lisa Lett was basically like, I probably wasn't going to buy the stocks, but I still want to date you. It's just like kind of insane the way she's like, no, no, none of this got past me, but I was cool with it. <laughs> I love Lisa Lett. She seems great. She's nice. She goes to help people. She apparently didn't fall for Fred Astaire's con. I loved seeing a con man get caught like from the beginning, even if he still managed to seduce her. Um, It's worth noting Lisa Lett is played by Jennifer Jones who was an actor going back to the 1940s, and she is one of the youngest people to win an Academy Award because she won her Oscar at 25. Wow. Good for her. And that was for The Song of Bernadette in 1944. So this is 30 years later. Honestly, Jennifer Jones was born in 1919, so she's like 65 in this movie. She looks good. Yeah, she does look good. And she's just very nice. And then that's about it for their moment. Uh, the mayor's wife, meanwhile, is upset that she can't use the phones to reach their daughter. She's stressing about, like, you know, I, I got to talk to her. I can't get through to her on the phone. She doesn't even know where I keep the key to the safety deposit box, which I think is a good lens of somebody facing disaster, focusing on something that's not a big issue, but hints towards the larger thing that she can't bring herself to say, which is, I might not be able to talk to my daughter again. Right. And obviously is in a state of shock as makes sense yeah at this point has the helicopter just exploded yet um this is like right around that time yeah the fire department tries landing a helicopter on the roof to rescue people and it blows up they say like there's high wind so it's risky but they try it anyway and i was like would it really just 
explode in midair or would it crash and then explode? Apparently, it <laughs> helicopter gets blown by too much wind. Before it even lands, it'll just fully blow up. Yeah, that's how that's how air works. Wind is explosive. Like farts, you know, exploding wind. Gross. I think that's about it for point three. Yep. So in point number four, they are starting to get people off of the promenade deck. One of the things they do is they say, hey, wait a minute. We have these exterior glass elevators that run the length of the building. So we can get some people down one way. The electricity is shot, but we can activate the gravity brakes on the elevator so we can at least get a crew down on that. This is my favorite rescue, I think, where Susan and Lisa Lett and the mayor's wife are all among the women that had drawn the first escape. Right. They had everybody on the promenade deck draw numbers for the order you'd be rescued, women first, then men. Right. And so the helicopter group was the first one, and that included Susan, the mayor's wife, and Lisa Lett. So they all get in the scenic elevator and they're going down, and then the elevator, one of the cables snaps. And unfortunately, Lisa Lett falls out, and it was very sad. Yeah, so Lisa Lett's dead. The elevator is just hanging there. But this is the part which I really liked. Uh, Steve McQueen is hanging on to a giant hook from a helicopter, which he then attaches to the top of the elevator which then the helicopter rips off the building and gently lowers to the ground as Stephen Queen's holding another firefighter from falling to his death it's so cool it was so cool yeah that's a great rescue sequence the other big rescue thing that they come up with is they like launch some cables from a building nearby and set up a pulley system so that they can have a person like sit in like a metal chair and be pulled on a pulley between these two buildings, 130 stories above the ground. It looks terrifying. And Patty, the daughter of William Holden, Roger's wife, is the first one to go on that chair, which looks just absolutely, like you said, horrifying. But at this point, they've gotten all of the women out, and then now it's the men's turn, and Roger shows his true colors when he is like number 60 something but he's like no i have to be first even though i am the cause of all of this i need to be the first one out and he just runs onto the chair and starts like pulling himself across and some of his like dumb compatriots who were also trying to force their way to the front hang on with it so he's going across and as he's going across he actively kicks three people to their death he is not only a passive murderer he is an active like murderer in that he kicks three people off of a chair from 130 stories up yeah roger is a bad man and he falls himself right right the cable snaps because of how many people get on it and then he falls to his death uh eventually they figure out how to put out the fire by blowing up the emergency water tanks on the roof and flooding the building and that takes us to point number five the end of the movie you know one of these days you're gonna kill ten thousand in one of these fire traps and i'm gonna keep eating smoke and Bringing out body until somebody asks us how to build them. So I think all the main characters that we've mentioned, I mean, I guess they're kind of main characters, but Dan, Lori, Roger, and Lisalette are all dead. But I think everyone yeah. else survives. Yeah, the mayor's wife is hospitalized after getting down from that horrifying experience hanging in a broken elevator on the outside of a building. Valid. 
Um, Patty and her father hug each other. Roger's dead. She's better off without him. The children are safe. O.J. Simpson, having rescued Lisa Let's Cat, brings it to Harley. Not entirely clear to me why, because O.J. did not witness any of their flirting at the party. Well, I mean, Harley is walking around screaming Lisa Let. That's true. And- I'll give you that. <laughs> I think it. he's making it very clear who he's looking for. And then Doug and Susan sit on the stairs, and Doug and Fire Chief Steve McQueen have a conversation. I don't think Susan has a line in the final scene. <laughs> no, I don't think she does. Because this so movie is about... So not only do they about... introduce this conflict that doesn't get resolved, she literally doesn't speak at the end. <laughs> no, she is just a passive observer to the conversation that's most important, which is, as long as people keep ignoring our heroic firefighters, they'll keep dying in building fires. And just think how worse that would be if the fire were at the top of an enormous building in the ocean. So there's water all around, but they can't get it up to put out the fire in the water tower. Well, (laughs) that's the end of this movie. Uh, So after watching all this... Do you find the romances of the Towering Inferno believable? All right, we got to walk through them. The mayor and his wife, good. Like, at one point, the mayor's wife is like, I don't want to go down the elevator. I want to stay with you. And the mayor's like, no, you should go. Like, that's a believable conversation. They're good. Um, Lisa Lett and Harley, I kind of have some trouble with because he's trying to defraud her out of a lot of money, and she's cool with it. Doug and Susan, I don't know enough about, which is weird because they're probably ostensibly our lead romance. I believe Patty and Roger, even though it's bad. Especially because they are already talking about getting a divorce. Right. I have a hard time with Lori and Bigelow because it's his job to be at the party. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So after going through all those, every week we rate a movie on a scale of one to ten. One is the least believable. Ten is the most believable. Where would you rate this movie? I don't know. What are you thinking? I think like a three. Maybe a four. I'm giving it a four. I think a four. Because there are some in there that I believe. And the the one that is ostensibly the main one, I just have no information. Yeah, I think there's more unbelievable romances than believable romances, which is why I'm going and towards a four. And greater detail is given to the unbelievable Right. Ones. Do you think that any of our romantic leads are dateable? Yeah, I think Doug and Susan are dateable. And I think Lisa Lett is dateable. Yeah. That's probably it. That's probably it. Do you think Doug and Susan will stay together? I I don't know because we introduced this massive problem for their relationship. (laughs) It's not resolved. Will Susan take the job? Give me a Towering Inferno sequel that's just about Susan and her new high-power corporate job. It's called Touring Inferno. They just flip the W and the O. (laughs) And there's no fire involved at all. It's just Faye Dunaway being a corporate executive in mid-70s America. I hope she takes the job. She seems great. All right, if you did have to choose one person in this movie to date, who would you choose? Probably Lisa Lett. Probably. Like, she's nice, she's friendly, she can see through Harley's crap, and she goes out of her way to help people. Yeah, she is a woman who is very willing to risk her own life to help others. Yeah, so that's cool. Now, Mark, many of the movies that we have covered have been adapted into stage musicals. Should The Towering Inferno make it to the reopening of Broadway? Uh, no. Because I think we all know fire in theaters, not a good mix. Yeah, we already have a Titanic musical, so I think we're good here. Yeah. All right, I think that's about it for Towering Inferno. Yeah, next week we will be shifting gears for a much smaller scale movie. We're going to take a look at 
a Sundance romance from the beginning of the last decade, Like Crazy. I'm excited because I don't really know anything about this movie. Yeah, I have heard good things, so I'm looking forward to checking it out. Some Anton Yelchin, Felicity Jones romance. Now, Will, have you come up with a title? Um, I think Sea Scraper is the best one. I came up with Scenic Views, spelled S-E-A-N-I-C, Views. Okay. Because it's... And is that for you? And that's for your romance? And that's for... I mean, if it's an anthology movie, it works because you're getting scenic views into all the different lives and stories of the people of the Sea Tower. Well, we could use a reference to another anthology movie and call it Movie 40C. Mm, I don't know if we want to associate ourselves with that. Yeah, I'm going Sea Scraper and I'm just making my, like, Snowpiercer class conflict movie. I mean, that sounds pretty good. Snowpiercer, great film. Yeah. But until next week, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod. You can always email us questions or roofing suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, especially on Apple Podcasts, to help new people find the show. Last question, William. What is the best piece of dating advice we got from the Towering Inferno? <laughs> um, it can't be build a secret sex den into your office. But that does seem like the most successful thing in the movie. If you have a major conflict in your relationship, bring it up, but never resolve it and just live in limbo for the rest of your lives. Um, I think my actual advice will be if a relationship is toxic and unsalvageable, end it, hopefully without anyone having to die. <laughs> well, there you go. Until next time, I'm gay. And I'm a ginger. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye. Bye. We may never love like this again. Don't stop the flow. We can't let go. We may never love like this again. And touch the sky.